It's the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Martha and the Vandellas for performing a song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Yeah, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there. But are they wicked good? Nah. Give us 60 minutes every week, and perhaps, indeed, we will give you a raw bone wrestling podcast. And now it is that time where I bring on my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin. Sean, let us have the conviviality begin. It, it just it seems fruitless that I have to do this every week because it just seems so simple that you should be signing up to the Facebook page right now. Yes. But because if you did last week, then you would have found out who did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago today. Uh, where the hell is Moldova and who was wrestling there in 1910? Who was Tokyo Tom and should you care? There's a stick to wrestling drinking game. Who's Johnny West and why is he so familiar? And is Nick Bockwinkle enough of a miracle worker to save a monkey's episode? All John's results are YouTube clips, old school videos, clips, and all for free, of course. All for free, of course. And find me on Twitter. Just look up John McAdam. You got the wrestling fighting picture and follow me on Twitter. Our own Sean Goodwin does not follow me on Twitter. So y'all got to make up for that by helping me on my march to a million followers. Sean, I want to ask you something really quick. Do you, did I ever tell you how you got the, you, you became the convivial co-host? No. Well, one of my favorite episodes of The Sopranos was an Artie episode. Now, you're all saying that's impossible, but it was. Artie was in his restaurant thinking he's the most charming guy in the world, hanging out with the patrons, patrons at their table. And his wife told him to knock it off. She said, Artie, people come here to talk to each other, not to you. And he pulls out an article from the New Jersey uh, Newark Ledger, and it reviewed the restaurant, and it said, the convivial host, Arthur Bucco. And I remembered that, and that's how you became the convivial co-host. I try. Yeah, you do do good at it. Before we get to the meat of the show, I've got one other thing to address. We don't ask a lot from the Stick to Wrestling Army, but here's what happened. Some dickless piece of shit, I'm pretty sure he's the one that keyed Vinnie Vega's car, also is keying our show by leaving negative reviews on the show in as many platforms as possible. Now, if someone listens to this show and they don't like it, fine, give it a negative review. Hey, I've criticized other people's work at times in my life. But this person came right out, I don't know who it is, obviously, he can be as anonymous as he wants, says, well, I've never listened to this show, but if it's part of Arcadian Vanguard Network, it must suck. So screw this guy. Let's all please push back. Leave Stick to Wrestling five stars, only if you think it merits five stars, on as many platforms as possible. And you know what? Do me a favor to cheat and get your friends to do this, because obviously there are no rules in this uh, old west of an internet. But having said that, we are going to continue uh, from last week with our Pro Wrestling Illustrated Review Awards from 1979. And I would want, once again like to bring on and thank Thomas Bain for participating with us. Thomas, how are you this week? I'm fantastic, John. Thank you guys for having me on once again. Hey, no problem. It's always a great show when we have you on. So picking up where we left off, moving right along, Pro Wrestling Illustrated had their top for heels of the year is what this basically is. The the most hated wrestler. Number one was Greg Valentine. 
Number two was Terry Funk. Number three was Ken Patera. And number four was Ivan Koloff. Thomas, your thoughts on their top four? I, I like the top four um, in a different order, however. Um, I would actually combine, since they worked so much together, Ole and Ivan. And I would put Valentine at one and Ole and Ivan number two. That's kind of a cop out right there. But ultimately, I think most of their work, most of their heel work was done together. And then I would go down Funk three, Patera four. All right. I could see that one. Sean, your thoughts. Well, let's probably oh, some more. Another drinking game. Down one, kids. What uh, what um, probably led to Koloff being here was not just his George work, but didn't he have a heel, heel run against Backlund? A, it was yes, it was most of it was in 1978, but okay. he still had some flagging matches left over. But, but most of his work was in Georgia. Uh, like Thomas, I like this list too. Um, the only thing I, uh, people I thought who deserved consideration. Uh, the one thing is, I guess Terry Funk for the uh, his involvement in the title, the Rhodes title situation, is why he's here, right? I mean, not only that, he had a great run with. with, with in Florida, excuse me, I was in the middle of drinking my Diet Coke. <laughs> Sorry. Um, now, now you couldn't know that one. Um, yeah, it had to, probably like the highlight of the whole thing was him breaking Dusty's arm, but like he had a, a great overall run there. I, I, I would say other guys I think could get consideration here is Pat Patterson had a great year. I agree with that, but I would say that Patterson's face turn almost negates the heel run that he had. Cause I considered him in my top four as well, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I don't, I don't know where I put these guys, but these are guys that just should be brought up. Uh, Gino Hernandez, uh, had a good year as you brought up last week. Uh, and here's another one, Paul Jones, Paul Jones, my number two. Yeah. This was, the, this was really his last great year in yeah. the ring. Yeah. Well, I mean, he never really was a great manager, but I mean, in, you know, this, this was, and he was always a much more natural heel than he was a face. Um, you know what, the more I think about that, the more correct you are. Um, I'm a little bit critical. I mean, PWI, Greg Valentine got the big angle where he broke chief J Strongbow's leg. Uh, and I'm sure that's the, the main thing that brought him up to their number one. Uh, my top five to no one's surprise, Terry Funk is number one. I thought he had uh, a phenomenal run in Georgia, in Florida, not only against dusty Rhodes, but then he had a great feud with Manny Fernandez. And Manny, I, I mentioned this in the past show, Manny Fernandez, I'd never heard of him before his Florida run. And I bought all of the magazines. And I think Terry deserves a lot of credit for getting Manny Fernandez's career on track and running. Number two, as I said earlier, Paul Jones. Um, the heel turn I know took place, the actual turn took place at the end of 1978, but 79 is when it really got rolling with uh, his tag team with Baron Von Raschka. Um, you know, I, to me, I've said this before, his shock, his turn to me was shocking and this is as someone who had never actually seen paul jones just seen him in the magazines and i never saw that one coming number three i have ole anderson this is why you know what when three heads are better than one it should be ole anderson and ivan koloff because they totally operated as a unit in georgia uh number four i had pat patterson um 
his turn didn't take place until I want to say December 1979, and I don't think I got to see it until early 1980 because you know the Boston TV was so far behind. But I mean, he had such a great run in the WWF. The feuds with uh, Backlund against DiBiase. He had kind of a regional feud here in Boston against Bruno Sammartino. And number five, yeah, he had the great run against Backlund. He broke Strongbow's leg. Greg Valentine. And I agree, Gino Hernandez definitely deserves a at least a uh, a mention here. Uh, but now, my problem with Oli is, does his face turn, as Thomas said about Pat appropriately, does his face turn negate some of his, because Ivan was a heel the whole time. Does his face turn at the end to set up the 80 uh, turn against Dusty, negate some of his heelness? Do either of you know, like, when that turn took place? Not, not exact date, but, like, month or around there? I don't know off the top of my head. I'm ashamed. I I originally thought it was into 1980, but I could be wrong. I'm going to promise you it had to be before Thanksgiving, because I think that was the split that caused the tag team tournament that year. You're right, because and, uh, Alexis Smirnoff and Ivan became the, the, the tag champs and then okay. Oli and Thunderbolt became a tag team. So that is right. All right. So, so yeah, you're probably looking at October, maybe, maybe November, early November. And you know what? If the after magazines are aware of a baby face turn, they automatically automatically eliminate that guy. So yeah, well, maybe Patterson and Oli are eliminated by after rule after mag rules. So, I mean, but uh, he he did have a great run, especially with that was just a very on paper. It looks weird, but it worked. Yeah, that team. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and they've teamed up regularly for even a while after that. They were in Mid-Atlantic in 81, raising some heck together. All right. The Comeback of the Year Award. Now, the PWA Comeback of the Year Award given since given yearly since 1992, recognizes the most impressive comeback by a professional wrestler during that year. Sting and Jeff Hardy have won this award a record three times each, but it did not exist in 1979. Thomas, who do you think should have been comeback of the year in 1979? Oh, goodness gracious. I'm trying to you know put me on the spot here. Ah. I... Looking at it from the perspective, maybe you go outside of the box, maybe because you look at comeback almost kind of like a quasi inspirational wrestler of the year award. Good point. So, so you almost have to put it as a baby face because that's, that's how it always is. So maybe you think outside the box here, maybe you look at someone who hasn't wrestled a lot in the States, maybe, I mean, the, the common sense tells you it's a, it's a health setback or an injury. But you look at guys that kind of bounced around territories with guys like, you know, Ernie Ladd, Stan Hansen. It's really kind of a, a, a hodgepodge of how you want to look at it for that. I mean, frankly speaking, it would never get a vote. But I mean, every time if Andre the Giant, you know, took six months off the territory from the WWF and then came back and headlined, isn't that a comeback to some you know, regards? So. Um. I mean, sort of. Andre, it never felt like he was gone. As someone who grew up watching, you know, WWE wrestling at this point, it never felt like Andre ever went away for an extended period of time. That could just be my perspective, and it could be incorrect. So we're going into PWI rules, right? 
Yeah, What's except we're match? not sure what they are. Uh, I kind of oh, went uh, with like, <laughs> I, I mean, each to his own. You can do it. E- either of you could do it either way you want. I kind of went with like uh, NLB. Like, you know, if you were gone for, gone for a couple of years or were injured or just had a couple of bad years, no, 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 no. you're in I'll it. tell you exactly who would get this. Basically, it depends on who Bill Aptor feels like, you know, whose ass he feels like kissing more, Vince's or uh, Jim Barnett's. But this is either going to Ole or going to Pat Pat. Because they've seen the light. Oh, that's a good point. Wow. That yeah, that that is a good one. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who else saw the light. Blackjack Mulligan, Ric Flair. I mean, you know, Mid Atlantic half that territory turned. I mean, this is part of the reason I had Paul Jones so high on my uh, heel list because that was a very you know I know it was kind of right at the beginning of the year, but that was high profiled. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I will give you mine. And Sean is not on a phone, so he can't hang up on me because he's going to go nuts over at least one of these. Okay. Number one, Terry Funk was like, from the time he lost the NWA title to Harley race in 1977, February, 1977, he had not done anything significant in the wrestling business. This was a huge comeback from my perspective. I mean, he went off and did a movie. He was doing Japan. I don't think he really did anything in any of the major territories. Like maybe he made an appearance in Georgia, but I checked. He hadn't been in Florida for a long time. So he gets my number one. Number two, everyone, everyone take, take a deep breath. I can explain why Bulldog Brower is number two. <laughs> I can explain. I can explain. He was gone from wrestling since like 1976. He had not done anything anything at all remotely major. I mean, maybe he wrestled the undercard in Toronto or Detroit or something like that. And now he's back after getting reinstated by Lou Albano, who hired some quack to say, oh yeah, he's mentally stable. Let him in the ring. That was the storyline anyway. And again, he's headlining throughout the Northeast. I'm not saying it should have happened, but it happened. After After Mags treated wrestling as a shoot. Uh, Number three, the Valiant Brothers had a big run in the WWF after being kind of on a milk carton for two or three years. Yeah, they did some stuff in Florida and in the WWA, but they were nothing compared to what they were in 74 and 75. They didn't replicate that success as we discussed last week, but hey, it gets a number three. Number four, Jim Garvin was a guy who at a very young age seemed to have disappeared from the wrestling business. He had been part of the Garvin's tag team in like 74, 75, little into 76, and that was kind of the last we heard of him. And then he gets a big break winning the Florida title as Killer Carl Cox's protege. Number five, Blackjack Lonza had... Medium success in the AWA. Sure, he was their tag team champion in 76, a little into 77, but he wasn't doing anything for a couple of years. And then he comes back and is the lead heel in Georgia, or at least he's the Georgia heavyweight champion. So there's my top five. Uh, I would say maybe, uh, well, it's most since maybe Tommy Rich. Because he has the the big face run after that. Yeah, I know what Bob Bob Brown doesn't bother me because whenever you th- say Bob Brown, the first place my mind goes. I just shut off what you're saying and I go right to Bob Geigel, giving his tributes 
on on that. You know, they asked him to give a tribute to his dear friend Bob Brown, who had passed, and he basically says, "Yeah, we used to have him over Thanksgiving. The wife hated him, the kids hated him, the dog hated him, the neighbors hated him. He's all right." That's great. I, That's I it. said it's a different guy, though. I said Bulldog Brower. Oh, Brown, um, just as bad. I still got to tell the Brown story anyway. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. All right. Uh, any other feedback on the PWI Comeback of the Year for award from you guys? Yes, it was much celebration in North Attleboro when the sweet when um, Brower was considered. Oh, yeah, e- even more so when Witchy's burned down. We didn't have to look at him anymore. All right. The PWI Most Improved Wrestler of the Year. I think I want to say this was like the second year they had this. And I, I had this in front of me a week ago. And, of course, I don't have it. But it's kind of a new award. Um, theirs, number one, was Tommy Rich. Number two was Eddie Mansfield. Number three was Kevin Von Erich. And number four was Ted DiBiase. Uh, I turn it over to you, Mr. Thomas Bain. Well, I think Tommy Rich is a is a good number one there. I, re- I really don't uh, see Eddie Mansfield in that top four. Perhaps, you know, he could be. Kevin Von Erich and Ted DiBiase. DiBiase is in the top four for me. But Kevin Von Erich... It's kind of hard to say someone is most improved when they start out on the top of the card. Uh, yeah. How do you improve from there? Unless you're the world champion. One, one person that I'll, I'll put on here for 79 is uh, Hulk Hogan, actually. Hogan coming in, starting out the year uh, in Georgia, did a little bit of Memphis in 78, came to the WWF in late 79 and was an absolute monster. I think to me, it goes rich. It goes Hulk Hogan. It goes DiBiase. I put DiBiase three because for, for some reason, like it didn't just click with me. It, it seemed like, I mean, he was booked strong, but he wasn't booked that strong. I don't think he really hit his stride until 1980. And these are awards within you know benefit of hindsight that you really shouldn't win twice. You know what I mean? You can't really you know, be the most improved person you know two years in a row or two out of three years. So DiBiase I have as, as a third. Uh, number four, I actually put Jim Brunzel on there. Brunzel uh, really kind of hit his stride from 78 to 79, was working more with Vern in six minutes at the top of the card, where Vern was kind of winding down, and they were kind of give, trying to give Greg the rub, but you know, Jim was you know, kind of a collateral damage, so to speak, on that, but he ultimately benefited from it and uh, it leaped into the, uh, the ability of it. I actually really, you know what, if I, uh, Jim Brunzel is a really strong choice. Yes. Got a couple of things to say about about some of the uh, wrestlers that have been mentioned. Eddie Mansfield, believe it or not, was a really talented wrestler. I think if he had, I'm not going to say had his head screwed on straight, but he he made some mistakes in the business. I mean, and clearly Eddie is known for something way different than his in-ring wrestling ability, but he could talk. He had charisma. He had a look. I mean, he was kind of doing the whole Ric Flair thing all over again, which only so many guys are going to get over with that. But I thought he had talent. Um, Hulk Hogan, that's a good call. Um, I remember he debuted. I saw him on TV for the first time, November 79. I had never seen him before in the magazines or anything. And just the reaction was, whoa, look at this guy. And obviously, well, if you saw his potential back then, you came out on top. Ted DiBiase, despite being North American champion, never really got a push in the WWF. He really 
never got more than Ted DiBiase or Steve Travis, a little bit more than Tony Gurria, but that's it. I mean, he came in as champion. He defended against middle-of-the-card guys at best, and then he lost it to Patterson, and it really looked like he just had the belt to lose it to Patterson. But anyway, Sean, uh, it's your turn to speak, sir. I agree with you on Ted. I love Ted, but this isn't for this category. This isn't a Ted year, I don't think. Um, it's you know, I, I would even say '78 is a better year for him in this category. Um, okay, whenever I'm, I'm a suspicious guy, and there was a lovely thing that you said about Eddie Mansfield. He's a poor man. He's a poor man's Eric Embry. Okay, I mean, oh no, he's yes, he is. He, I mean, come on. I've, I, I haven't watched this guy. I don't see it. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. He should not. The second I saw his name here, I'm like, okay, is this like Bill's mole? Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking this. Where's Manny Fernandez? And Jim Brunzel's a great pick. I forgot about him and Hulk Hogan, too. All three of those guys are there before Eddie Mansfield. And at, at two? I mean, my God. But, uh, yeah, Tom, I think Tommy Rich is the easy winner here. This was his year. This set up the world championship coming up in 81. This was when he made the leap in Georgia. Okay. I Well, hmm. I mean, Eddie Mansfield, I disagree that he was underneath Eric Embry. I mean, I've, I've seen pr- plenty of footage of him. I think at this time he was in Los Angeles in 79. I think he was in Los Angeles. I know he was in Los Angeles and Texas. And like I said, I, I saw something in him. Now, maybe I'm, I was wrong, uh, obviously, at the end of the day because he kept you know, quitting promotions and bitching about things in general. I mean, you can't just quit a promotion with mm. no notice over and over again and no. say, hey, I got blackballed. But yeah, and guess what? If he drew, he never would have been blackballed. The only no one ever gets blackballed when they draw. They only get blackballed when they don't draw. And I still think this must have been during your mescaline era when uh, you were watching these highlights, because I have no I, I, I'm not I'm looking at a di- completely different guy. <laughs> I didn't have that era, but anyway, do you, so do you, did you share your top five, Sean? Um, I would say Tommy Rich, uh, Manny Fernandez has to be here. This was like a big, big Manny Fernandez. This was probably hit between this and 80, his two best years. He was fantastic all year long. He came, you know, he was never at this level. He was always kind of never at a sustained main event level like he was here. I would say Tommy, I would say uh, Manny Fernandez, um, you know, I'm, I, it was, yeah, it was a good year for Kevin, I guess. But I would say Hulk Hogan and Jim Brunzel would fill out my list. All right. Yeah, it's the thing where when we talk about Kevin Von Erich, I mean, it's an after mag rule. Just like, look at, you know, get some of Fritz's guys in a category. OK, this one, this one works. No problem. I mean, that's what they did, because as as Thomas said, I mean, when it comes to push, nothing really improved in 1979. But anyway, mine and I made these about eight or nine days ago. I have not changed them. Uh, number one, I have Manny Fernandez. Uh, for all the reasons you guys have already explained, he went from kind of being nowhere to the not the top guy in Florida. That was Dusty, no matter who held the Florida title. But he was definitely the number two babyface for a while. Uh, number two, I went with Jimmy Snuka. Here's a guy who was in the AWA in the early mid-80s, not getting any kind of a push. Then he got regulated 
to Dallas and then Portland. And in Portland for a while, it looked like his career was going to be, you know, the uh, big fish in a small pond. And when he came to Mid-Atlantic in late 1978 is when the star bloomed. He became tag team champions with Paul Orndorff. Then he turned heel and won the United States title, which in the NWA next to the world's heavyweight championship is the, was the number one belt at this point. So he's got, uh, he's wearing a title that Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, Paul Jones, Wahoo McDaniel, etc., had won had worn over the years. So I went with him number two, Tommy Rich number three. Uh, you guys are correct that he had he went from being a potential star. Uh, end of 78 to a star by the end of 1979. Uh, number four, I went with Tito Santana. He was a kind of a mid-card guy in Amarillo, and he got a new name and a big push in the WWF. Sure, he was the number two guy in the tag team behind Ivan Putski, but that is a sweet spot to be in. And number five, I went with Greg Valentine because to me, he seemed to make the leap from, you know, yeah, a star in Mid-Atlantic, you know, Ric Flair's, uh, the Ric Flair, he was Robin to Ric Flair's Batman as heels, to a top guy who main evented Madison Square Garden twice, had a memorable run against Backlund. Yeah, he had the feud with Strongbow. By the end of 79, I'm looking at Greg Valentine as a potential NWA champion, which I didn't see him as a year ago. Uh, any thoughts from you guys? Uh, I was going to say, Snook is a good one, too. Uh, I wasn't sure because didn't he have a big year in 78 as well? Snooker? Yeah. Uh, the last, probably the last two or three months of it. And even then, he was tag team champions with Paul Orndorff. Yeah, that's a nice spot, but it, it's not the number yeah. one guy, which he was at the end of the year. Yeah, so um, that's a good. That's uh, yeah, he's also a good. Job. Yeah, I I don't know. Still with Tito, you're like a, that's a good spot, but I, I got other guys. I mean, he deserves consideration. He's a very good honorable mention, but it's just it's it's not the leap that Manny Fernandez made or Tommy Rich. No, I mean that's why I, I have number four. And you know what? You guys are probably right. Jim Brunzel might have been a better a better pick there. What about uh, Matt Superstar in '79? Oh, let me think. I mean, he transitioned from big time heel in the mid Atlantic area, but clearly a step behind Flair, Valentine, Mulligan, probably a couple of other guys to the number one or close to it guy in Georgia. So that's a good pick. Again, he was also one I wasn't sure about because he had a run in JCP before this, didn't he? Yes, he did. So, I mean, I think that I, that's where I would have put him. I think that was in – when did he change? He would have gone from the Mongol to that character. In like late 76, early 77 that happened. Yeah. So that that's where I would have put him if I was going to put him on this list. Okay. You know, a little bit more about Snuka. I mean, it, it's more than just, you know, okay, he went from the Portland guy to United States champion. It's like he found himself with yeah. that heel gimmick. I mean, you look at Snooker in 77, 78, you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's cute, whatever. And now you've got this savage-looking dude in 79 who's all gassed up, and he, and he looks like I mean, he looks like someone who collects for a pimp. And- oh, no, yeah. Jimmy with the boots made all the difference in the world. You, yeah. you know the match is going to be about three times better if you see the boots on. And if you have the cowboy hat, forget about it. Yeah, exactly. You're, about, you're in for a classic. 
I mean, there, there's, there's plenty of guys you could really make sound arguments for as opposed to comeback of the year. I think you could, you know, reasonably put Larry Zabisco on there. They started, you could tell by late 79, they, when, once they transitioned the tag belt off of him, they had plans for him. One that I actually debated between Brunzel was uh, Hussein Arab, which, was, which is the Iron Sheik. That's actually a good pick yeah. because he went from, again, being kind of a nobody in Texas and Portland to, I mean, he made a event in Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund. So a lot of guys had good 79s, like, you know, wow, I've, I've taken a big step forward from last year. Um, inspirational Wrestler of the Year. The PWI Inspirational Wrestler of the Year recognizes the most inspirational professional wrestler of the year. I can't believe I just read that. Holy crap. I was in Wiki. Uh, generally, the award is meant to go to a wrestler who overcomes great odds to achieve success in the ring, although it has been awarded to wrestlers who have overcome real-life hardships and struggles. Yeah. Their top four. Uh, Chief J. Strongbow's number one. Rick Flair is number two. Mr. Wrestling two is number three and Dusty Rhodes is number four. Uh, Thomas, give us yours. Now, this award sucks. First of all, I just want to preface that you know, we need to begin here, but um, really, I mean, those four are right there. I guess you put Backlund in there for being the ultra white meat baby face. You could put him on there. I don't know how you can, it kind of, paint Strombo into being a pussy kind of having him being number one on here because he got injured in a match and he, you know, overcame adversity, yada, 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 as opposed to Ric Flair who broke his back in a plane crash and turned face. <laughs> I mean, come on now. So I would take Strombo off of here. I would just do, you know, pick out of a hat, Flair one, and then hell, Dusty two, Backlund three, whoever you want is you know, somebody from Texas or the AWA four. Cause this award, I, I absolutely, this, this is the most pointless award in, in the PWI annals. I it wish, me to no end. I wish I had taken your slant on this because I spent way too much time <laughs> figuring out who, who amongst these professional wrestlers was the most inspiring. Oh my God. I should have just did what Thomas did. All right, Sean, your thoughts on the PWI top four and give us yours. If you got them, if you got to do this kayfabe, then this would be chief J's seventh consecutive year winning this award. <laughs> because he would have won it when Spiro Arian ripped out his little headset, his little uh, um, his uh, uh, his nice little costume he had going on, or you could have had when uh, Peter Mayavia messed him up, or you could have had. I mean, pick one. It Valiant. A year. Valiant. I mean, it happens all the time. So Mayavia. Yeah. Yeah, that's not you know so. That's just to emphasize the ridiculousness, as Thomas was saying, of this award. Uh, Mad Dog Vishon. My number five. Well, I, I think I think Mad Dog Vishon. I think again, you're going by PWI rules again. So because with heroic music in the background, you know, Oli saw the light, and so did uh, Pat Patterson. So those two are going to be in the list too. I would say probably again, it depends on who who uh, Bill's trying to impress more, Jim or Vince about which one wins it. Okay. All right. Here's, here's mine. I went with chief J strongbow because he overcame a potential career ending injury. Category. No strongbow overcame in kayfabe, a career, a potential career threatening injury. Number two, I went with dusty Rhodes because of the broken arm angle. Uh, even though he wasn't out for a while, 
then it got difficult. Um, I went with Mr. Wrestling 2 because, I mean, this guy's not old. He's cryptic. Greg Gagne, number four, because he overcame his size issues. And number five, Mad Dog Vashon. He turned, and he's getting older, but he's hanging in there. Like I said, I just should have gone Thomas's way. I guess if I had to put a fifth on here, which I don't, but I'll just do it for the sake of the podcast, I would probably put Gorilla Monsoon in there for his like mild comeback in late 79, going from semi-retirement to kind of headlining B-Town, you know, leading up to his retirement match with Patera in 80. So here's your five. All right. I, from now on, this is the most inspiring pro wrestling podcast out there. That's that's going to be part of the new tag because it's so ridiculous. All right. Yeah, like I said, I, I took way too much time trying to think of guys to cram in there. But anyway, uh, let me see. I lost my place because I was writing that down. All right. This one, we don't have them numbered. Pro Wrestling Illustrated Rookie of the Year. Another impossible task because I have no idea what their definition of Rookie of the Year is. Let me give you an example. They had Sweet Brown Sugar as number one. He was number three as, as Skip Young just two years ago, and I, Ray Charles could tell this is Skip Young. Number two, Steve Travis. I don't know if he had if he had been in the ring uh, before 1979 or when he debuted, but he was billed as Rookie of the Year in WWF, so I guess that helps. Number three, Brian St. John, another guy I'd never heard of, so who knows? Maybe he really was a rookie. And number four, Eddie Gilbert, who I think really was a rookie. I'm pretty, I know he was a rookie in 79. I know he started wrestling then. Uh, Thomas, your thoughts. Maybe give us your rookie of the year and tell us what you think of PWI's top four. Well, rookie of the year is very subjective, too, as Gorilla Monsoon once called Carlos Colon in 1993, this youngster. So... <laughs> We can, re- we can really shake that as, as we see it here. I do like Eddie Gilbert at number one because I, I try to keep it as, as strictly on the books as possible by rookie because I have no idea what the hell PWI considers a rookie. If you're by that surname in the magazine, I guess you're kind of SOL. But I do like Eddie Gilbert there because I can kind of verify that he's a rookie. After that, it's kind of, eh, is he, isn't he, whatever it is. Are we going to go by just you know WWF rookies? I mean, I mean uh, by their what, what they what the company refers to them as? Because Steve Travis, I believe, wrestled, and someone will correct me on this, but I thought he wrestled in that in the Welsh territories, Memphis, something like that, in '78. But I could be wrong on that. You are more than likely very right. I here, I mean, did Steve Travis have an, enough at in 1978 to qualify as rookie of the year in 79 like that's the thing i have no idea what the criteria is i mean at this point in time i can can go eddie gilbert here i mean i'm not sure when stan lane started stan lane would be up there uh brian st john which is kind of cheating because st john and, and and lane were a tag team which you can actually see a uh a video i believe sean posted on the uh wrestling Facebook page, but they were a, a pretty pretty good tag team in 79, but I don't know if Lane kind of fell into that or not. Moving forward there, um, I'm just going to go ahead and bypass and, and defer to Sean here, because I really couldn't say what's a rookie and what's not a rookie. I, I could sit here all night speculating. <laughs> well, Sean, it's been kicked to you. Are you there? Yes. You know, Tell us what you think of PWIs and maybe give us yours. The, uh, the rookie of the year? Yes, sir. Eddie Gilbert is mine. 
because here's my problem, and you know how they do this with these guys is that they. I guess Skip Young is as good as anybody, but the guy who wins the Rookie of the Year ends up being like a four-year pro. It's basically the first time he gets any attention anywhere. Yes. So that kind of combines into a bunch of other categories, as opposed to like you know the um, uh, the wrestling the Wrestling Observer, where you would basically have they, you know. In that case, it's actually a rookie. So I have no idea what they're considering a rookie here. So, yeah, why not Skip Young? But if I have to pick like a legit, I think this was Eddie Gilbert's first full-time year. I think it was. Not only was it his first full-time year, I'm pretty sure he had his first match in 79. And he was a significant performer. I mean, he had a very good tag team with his father. And they had a uh, – it wasn't a main event feud, but it was a hot feud with the uh, the Waynes. Yes. A little kind of a father-son kind of thing. So, I, yeah, I, if I'm going to pick a rookie of the year, I'd say Eddie Gilbert. Uh, aside of that, why, I, I, how long has Skip Young been in the business at this point? Oh, I think he's been in since 76 at least. Okay, so we're basically in his fourth year. So we're going to give it the rookie here. And I think Tommy won it in his like, – Tommy won it the year before which would have been his third or fourth year. <laughs> so uh, uh, how about Brian St. John? Is he a legit? I, be- I think so. I mean, th- that's the thing. It's, you know, you can't go to sportsreference.com and find out exactly when these guys had their first match. And even if they had their first match, you know, if you have uh, four matches in six months, I mean, does that really count towards anything? Here's a good spot to put Tito, though. Because I think he's only been using that name for a while, and it would have been he would have been new to most of the audience. I agree with you. To, to uh, I mean, here's how I did it. Okay, I looked at it, and I think this is how the aftermags looked at it. They, if you made your debut in a major wrestling promotion that that in '79, then you're a rookie, and they're looking at some of the other wrestling promotions that don't get as much coverage in the aftermags. Whether this is fair or not, as kind of like triple A wrestling. So once you reach the majors, you're, you're no longer playing for the Pawtucket Red Sox. Now you're playing for the Boston Red Sox. It seemed like that's how they did it. So that's how I based it on. So I had never heard of any of these guys before January 1st, 1979. That's how I did it. Number one, we've talked about him a lot already, Manny Fernandez. Number two, Tito Santana. Number three, Steve Travis, who actually got a really strong push the first, I don't know, maybe two months, two and a half months into his WWF run. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they just poured ice water on him. They had him go to a draw on TV, I think, against Baron Mikel Zucluna, which tells your audience that, hey, this guy's not a star. Uh, Number four, I went with the tag team of Brian St. John and Stan Lane. Uh, Number five, I went with Eddie Gilbert. I think technically I could have gone with Sweet Brown Sugar, uh, but even, you know, the first time I saw Sweet Brown Sugar in a magazine, I'm like, okay, that's Skip Young. He he doesn't get Rookie of the Year. That's just not fair. He has a very distinct body type. He's missing an eye. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it's yeah, he's not a guy who like like a dusty thing where you're going to hide him with a mask. I mean, it's, <laughs> you mean, you, you know it's him. Actually, you it, know what? Totally, you're right. I mean, he could he could be fine. Both of his eyes would be fine. And I would still totally know that was Skip Young. Go ahead, Thomas. If we're going into big time wrestling, this is a question I posed to you guys. When was Bad News Allen's first run in in America? Not Stampede, but in America in the WWF in '79. 
As far as I know, yes. And listen to this. I saw bad, bad news. Brown, bad news. Allen, excuse me, is what they called him. Had one of the weirdest runs I've ever seen. He did not appear on championship wrestling ever. He appeared on all-star wrestling, which was clearly the B show. I mean, it was probably more of a C show than a B show. He was managed by Fred Blassie sometimes, but wait, I saw him lose uh, by pinfall to Frank Williams at Jack Witchie Sports Arena in North Attleboro. I am not making that up. Friend of the show, Jamie Ward, also saw Bad News Allen lose to Frank Williams. I think he said at the Philadelphia Spectrum it might have been a spot show. But like two of them, two of us have seen a guy managed by Fred Blassie on occasion during this run lose to Frank Williams. So it, it's definitely a, a trippy ride for this guy at this point now he had i had to be on his way back to canada on that at that point and just gave his notice and they just had him job to frankie on the way out because he was given a semi like a steve travis level push almost when he first came into wwf yeah he was and he was managed by blassie so right there he's got some cred well i uh, also, he's uh, he's not going to Canada, I don't think. I think he's going to Los Angeles, where he's about to have a pretty good tag team with uh, Leroy Brown. Oh, that's so, right. I forgot about that. So that makes me wonder, since these jobs were involving Fred Blassie, if this is kind of a favor to Fred or something like that, uh, you know, on the way out for helping him out in L.A. Uh, you know, it also might have been a New Japan thing. Mm. Just thought of that. Two guys who really did debut in 1979, but did absolutely nothing, so they wouldn't warrant any vote, was uh, Jim Duggan, who was just a, a TV job guy for the WWF, uh-huh. and Kerry Von Erich's best friend, Brian Adidas. Oh, that's right. Uh, I just thought of someone else who might have really debuted. It went in my head and out. Did, I think Barry Windham for real debuted in, eight, in 79. Well, that's, I yeah, that's not but I could be wrong. I, yeah, it's it, it it could have been like in somewhere in the winter of seventy nine. I mean, yeah, he was you know what the more I think about this, it had to be because he was putting up the ring in Amarillo and wrestling the same night and they, and this was before he went to Florida. So who knows? It could be seventy eight. I I just thought of that. But before we get off that, I have to tell a story from about twenty years ago. I get an email from Mrs. Bad News Alan Coage or from Alan Coage's wife, and he's like, you have tapes of my husband when he had hair? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Here, give me your address. So that was pretty cool. All right. Now this one's painful. Manager of the year. Wait a minute. What about the Stanley Weston Award? Oh, we're going to skip that. I don't even know. I don't even know how to how to criterialize this. Do you have some, something you want to throw in for that? Yeah, you just pick an old guy. Who's just, like, I would just say Chris point. Taylor died. Well, I mean, I, that, I, I was thinking Pat O'Connor. I mean, this seems like an award that Pat O'Connor could win like every year at this point. Well, I mean, his last match was at the at the Mushnick uh, retirement show, which was January 1st, 1982. So I, I kind of hold off on Pat O'Connor, who I absolutely love, by the way. What a, what a worker he was. Then we can give it to Stanley Weston. Oh, he's got to die first. He, he didn't get it until he died. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, well, that was, you know, that shows how ridiculous that award is. So, manager of the year. <laughs> manager of the year. Oh, man. Number one manager of the year, and 
in a way, I can see it because he's Bob Backlund's manager, Arnold Skoland. But come on. I, even as a kid, I knew that, you know, this guy, he he really wasn't a manager manager. Yes. Yeah, sometimes he came out with Bob and did an interview. Uh, I imagined maybe behind the scenes, he handled Bob's travel or something like that. This is like my, my kayfabe version of what Arnold Skolan does, but he became Bob's manager after he won the belt on his own. And now he just, you know, Okay, Bob picks the guy as his manager, and he gets manager of the year. I, th- I thought it was ridiculous, even as a kid. Uh, number two was Captain Lou Albano. Number three, Buddy Rogers. And number four, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Thomas Bain, I hand the floor to you. Now, if we're saying the guy who looks like the manager of a casual restaurant, yeah, I'd, I'd say Arnold Skolan, number one. <laughs> Very but- casual. With that uh, three buttons down the shirt there, it, it's pretty it, – it's always casual at the garden in the summertime. <laughs> um, I would have to go Albano number one. I think that, that that's pretty much a, a layup for me anyway. Uh, number two, even though he didn't really have a memorable year, you can't have this list without Bobby Heenan. I mean the Georgia run had a lot to be desired for it. I think he had his knees cut off from underneath him there, but I go Heenan two. I go Humperdinck three. After that, ooh, now we're now we're getting a dicey water here. I would say Fred Blassie four, even though I'm not exactly enamored with him, and, and then George Cannon five. Okay, all right, Sean, uh, you, your thoughts on the PWI top four, and then give us yours. Skoland walked to the ring, took Bob's terry cloth towel, and sometimes sat down in a little steel chair, and sometimes walked back. And for that, he gets a plaque. That is, or he rubbed Bob's shoulder when he was crying after he got beaten up again. So, <laughs> in, uh, I I don't know what. Uh, so this is you could pretty much either mark in Bobby Heenan or Lou Albano at this point every year between like the late seventies into the early eighties because it's either one of those two. If, if you know by any standard, pretty much. One guy, uh, I wrote down uh, a couple of the guys who it's kind of funny who they were managing. Hump was managing McGraw, Brown, and Funk in uh, Florida. Buddy, his uh, mine, Buddy Rogers, uh, who had Snuka, Patera, Dewey Robinson, and Stud in uh, JCP. Uh, Lou had the Valiant Brothers and the Samoans, and then Arnold, of course, had his you know one client operation in uh, Bob Backley. Sounds like you know the, the Don Corleone's lawyer. I just have one client. So I would say uh, Rogers is my guy here because uh, by these rules and uh, because he finally, you know, and also you put him in consideration for comeback and inspirational too, but he pretty much came out of nowhere at this point. He'd been out of the business for how many years? Oh, like 15, I want to say. And everybody knew Buddy. I mean, the, it was just one of those names. It's like Babe Ruth in baseball. Uh, it's just yeah, at that, at that point in time, and the WWF wasn't afraid of using his name all the time as the first champion, even back then. So I, I'm surprised he didn't get more. But I, I, to he, he's the obvious winner. Skoland, please. And why? What, what did Backlund do? He lost. He had the belt held up, didn't he? 
not <laughs> once again if we're playing by aftermag rules uh no not this year even though he lost the title to Antonio Inoki in Japan and my understanding is he never won it back Inoki just gave it back to him I this this wasn't even like a great Bob year. I could understand giving it to him for like if you want to have him piggyback off of Bruno in '76, fine or '75. This wasn't even like a big Bob year. Uh, I mean, he had some good matches, stuff like that. But '80 was bigger, '78 was bigger. So I have no idea why he's here. Um. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I will give you mine. And by the way, have no fear, stick to wrestling fans. This is the last award we have to discuss. But I've got other topics in front of me, so we, we you're not going to get cheated out of the last twelve minutes of this show. Uh, number one, I had Bobby Heenan. Why? Because he was. Again, you know, in kayfabe, he left a very successful AWA career where he led Nick Bockwinkle to the AWA title and Bockwinkle still held the title. And he was ambitious enough to go out to Georgia. And he was kind of a lead heel out there for a lot of 79, deferring to Koloff and Anderson, of course. But he managed the Georgia champion in uh Blackjack Lonza, I think Mass Superstar also had the Georgia Championship with Heenan as a manager. Uh, Killer Carl Cox also got a big push. So he went out and did something way different, and that's why I put him at number one. Number two, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. I had him there because, number one, he was established, to me at least, as the top manager in the WWF. If you were going to have a top-of-the-line heel come in, a guy like uh, Magnificent Morocco, and he came in two years later, you knew he was going to Grand Wizard. Proof in the pudding, Greg Valentine got the push with the Grand Wizard. He had a big run against Backland, and then a few months later, we had the giant Pat Patterson run. So I went with Wizard number two. Number three, Lou Albano. I mean, hey, Brower sucked, but he got the main event in Madison Square Garden. He had the tag teams, of course, with the Valiants. He had Bobby Duncan near the end of the year. So I went with him, number three. Number four, you know what? It could be argued. That Sir Oliver Humperdinck maybe could have gone ahead of Lou Albano. I had him at number four because he was the lead manager in Florida and he kind of managed anyone. Um, any final thoughts uh, from either of you gentlemen on manager of the year? Well, the fact that they had to send Lou in with uh, Brower is a tribute to Lou, not, not a negative. I mean, that, that's what made him you know, possible at MSG is if you have Lou with him. True. I mean, they tried that a few years later with Bugsy McGraw, and it, it didn't work, but different place and time. Uh, Thomas, any final thoughts from you? I regret that I uh, withheld the Grand Wizard's name from this list, actually. That, that's, that's my faux pas. And if I could remove you know, Crybaby Cannon from five and put him in there, then you know, I retract my, my fifth person on there and put Wizard on there. Yeah, I'd that's have- all right. I have it fifth. I mean, the only reason the only reason I didn't have him higher, Wizard, was because it really wasn't a big Wizard year. Uh, as you, I mean, he had the main event guys, but he always had the you know the the big main event guys. Um, he had bigger years than that. That's why Heenan was a bigger deal because he tried something different. So that's a good pick for him. Uh, I'd still say, but if I'm going if I'm going by uh, observer rules, I'm giving Heenan or Albano. But I'm using them all the time. If I'm just going by this rule, I, I just have to put Rogers there because, again, he just came out of nowhere and he has a bunch of main event guys like Snuka. 
you know, I, I'm looking at my list and I'm scratching my head. Why did I stop at four? Uh, number five, I would actually go Gary Hart, who is the lead guy in Dallas and managing Pac Song and Gino Hernandez, etc. cetera. Uh, all right. This show drops on December 12th, 2019. 30 years ago today was Starcade 89. And I feel like I'm the only one who liked this show. To the tune of, uh, in the Wrestling Observer, they do the vote for 1989, but it, it goes from, the year goes from December 1st of one year to December 1st of the other. I voted Starcade 89 best pay-per-view of 1990, because that's the category it fil- fil- fits under. I liked it then, I liked it now. Thomas, am I wrong? Am I the only one who liked this show? You're the only one amongst us that liked it. <laughs> I will say this about I will say this about Stark 89. It's really gotta be done the right way. You could do it one of two ways. The way they did it, which you had a definitive winner on the baby on the tag team side and the single side, which I believe was Sting and the Steiners, correct? Yes. And when you do that, you can either do it the other way, which is a bunch of schmoz, and the pay-per-view is a total nightmare, and it's worse than it is now. But you compl- in a four-man, round-robin format, you completely bury somebody. And at this point, I believe it was the Simone SWAT team and Muda who were completely buried. Is that correct? Yes. They were dead in the water. And any hope you had of getting the Samoans over was dead there. Now, you had Muda, who wanted to turn baby, who could have turned babyface sometime in 1990. But depending upon who you believe, Gary Hart destroyed that. But any way you cut it, when you have a four-person singles card and a four-tag teams, the way it's done, some, not, someone's not going to lose. They're going to get completely buried and knocked down to the second or third rung of tag teams or singles in that company. And that's what it accomplished. It killed Muda. It killed the Samoans. I don't think it killed Muda or the Samoans. Muda, and I think I've said this on this show before, and if I have, I apologize. He was over, but he he was seen in in just not the same light as Ric Flair, Sting, and Lex Luger. He was a step behind. I think people felt that way about him coming in, and I think they felt that way about him coming out. I know there was a lot of heat with Gary Hart, you know, and from Gary Hart mostly, that Muda was being used that way. Um, I know that there was talk of Muda turning at one point. I don't know. Sean, you take the floor. Tell us what you thought of Starcade 89. It's Starcade. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, a show that is good for Halloween Havoc is not going to be good for Starcade. This is part of their problem, is that when Starcade just became another show, You could say what you want. I'm not saying every WrestleMania was fantastic, but at no point did you ever see Vince half-assing a WrestleMania show. Sometimes he just doesn't have the guns. Sometimes it just, you know, for whatever reason, it's not there. But there's always an effort there. A tournament? This is your biggest show, and you have a tournament for nothing. You had like a million-dollar, one match for a million dollars in 1984. Now you have a round-robin tournament. This is, it's a Starcade show. They're pissing on their own product. I mean, this, is, this was part of their issue right now. This needs to be a bigger show than this. This is a fine pay-per-view in February. But this is, this is your feature show. Yeah, I get it. I mean, you have these guys, you know, competing for funsies. You know, you win Starcade, and that's all there is to it. And, I mean, I, I agree. I and mean, everyone was saying at the time, the November Clash of the Champions should have been Starcade. 
and Starcade should have been a clash of the champions. Uh, one thing I will say about this show, it got the young talent over. Like Sting, for a little while at least, was the man who won that tournament over Ric Flair, over Lex Luger. Uh, the Steiners won that tournament over the Road Warriors, over everyone else. And the Steiners, at this point, I mean, it was their first, it was their first, it was the first indication that these guys were going to get pushed hard as a tag team or pushed hard in general. I mean, Scott was doing t- jobs on TV middle of 89, and now he's being elevated. You guys will never guess who was originally supposed to be in the tag team to replace the skyscrapers instead of the SST and get buried. It rhymes with the Midnight Express. Of course, because the first 27 times they buried him wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, we'll do it one more time. I mean, it's like Lucy in the football. No wonder he's so mad. Oh, okay, yeah. you can definitely see why, why they're all mad about how they were treated, especially the way they performed for them. Oh, I mean, yeah, and Cornette was, was, you know, had already walked out of the promotion in 89 and, and came back like four or five weeks later when he was assured that things were going to get better. And here we are. The Midnights had just turned not even a month ago at that Clash of the Champions. They just turned heel again, and they were going to get buried in this tournament. Uh, Thomas, I want to get your thoughts. Well, I'm just glad they bypassed them in the tournament. I mean, and if you really wanted to bury somebody, why not just put the Freebirds in there at that point? Hayes and Garvin. They're not doing anything, and they have enough uh, panache to their name where they could recover from it. You know, burying the Samoans, which I still think they did, it did them no favors. I mean, they were gone, you know, shortly thereafter. I believe they added the Samoan Savage sometime after that. But at the same time, it did them no favors, and I'm pretty sure – I mean, granted – Samu, Samu was, you know, very flighty wherever he was uh, you know, yeah. throughout his career. But and it had they, you know, at least held rank or you know picked up a win over Doom or you know the Steiners or the Road Warriors. Does he stay? Probably not. But I'm sure you know shooting him out the door, which is what they did at this point in time, didn't do uh, the team any favors. No. Uh, and one thing, I mean, I absolutely loved the SST. The, the year before when they were in world class, I was like, you know, I was very happy when they got on the big stage and got to come to WCW. I thought they'd earned it. Uh, I didn't think they were ever used correctly. Number two, I mean, it, the Midnights weren't bypassed. I mean, they were going to use them in the tournament. And I forget exactly what Jim Cornette said or did to have them mercifully removed from the tournament. But it, it took some doing. But anyway. We're close to being out of time, but I want to touch upon one quick thing while I still have you guys. Uh, it's 12-12-2019 when this drops. Junkyard Dog would have turned 66 years old today. Uh, Thomas, share some thoughts on JYD. JYD was, you know, when I grew up, I'm, I'm 36 now. JYD was uh, one of the biggest stars in the in my world of wrestling, which, you know, when I was a, a small child with WWF living in the Northeast. And once, you know, the eighties turned into the nineties and he was still hanging around WCW as late as like 93 and just looked so bad. I mean, thankfully for me, you know, the development of the internet and WWE network, yada, yada, yada. You can see a lot of JYD's early work in mid South and you see what a big deal he really was. And to me, you can argue he's the person 
that put Bill Watts and Mid-South on the map permanently as a major player in wrestling. I yes. think if you have to give it to one wrestler in that company, by no stretch of the imagination, that has to be put on JYD's back. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, I've said this before. I mean, I was getting Mid-South Wrestling on cable in early 1980 and, and seeing JYD, you know, I'd never heard of him before, but I saw this guy and I, I saw a superstar. Sean, your thoughts on Junkyard Dog? You look up it in the dictionary and it has JYD right next to it. He just, even when he was in, uh, you, you felt as a heel in, um, as a heel in Calgary. I mean, you could see something special about the guy, but then, yeah. uh, you know, and of course, you know, you're great when 72 people all take credit for your, your success. <laughs> um, but so whoever's idea it was, they unleash him in Mid-South. They're smart enough to put a tag team partner with him because even then he was fine. But I mean, you don't want to expose him too much in 20 minute matches by himself. And the way the way they used it was perfect. And they just let him they played to his strengths, which was just that over his promos were fine. Everything was fine, except it was him. And he just had this kind of magnetic thing about him that it's just impossible to explain. You can't teach it. it like everything. If you just try to pick one thing about him that was excellent, you can't find anything. It was just that overwhelming personality that just dragged everything else up. The guy was magic. Yeah, he had the charisma. And believe it or not, early in his careers, his interviews were really, really good. Um, I mean, it's sad what happened to JYD. He got two big pushes, or reasonably big pushes in WCW, one in 89 and one in 90, and both of them were just cringeworthy. And it was kind of sad because the guy didn't have it anymore, but if he didn't fall victim to some of his bad habits, which, you know, that's at least the rumor, then, I mean, as Dave Meltzer said in JYD's obituary, he really could have been part of the Monday Night Wars. That's how how excellent he was. Even though he would have been in his early 40s, he still could have had a role. But anyway, we've been on a roll and we've got to get out of here. It's always the fastest hour of my week. Thomas Bain, thank you for taking the time and coming on, man. You were great. Gentlemen, it's always my pleasure and I'm willing to do this show at a moment's notice about any topic except for 1960s early Japan wrestling. I, I'm kind of clueless on that, so just you know, go to the next guy. But thank All you so right. much. Because that's coming up, and not really. Anyway, I also want to thank Sean Goodwin for everything he does for this show. He is the convivial co-host. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for being an awesome producer, and this show has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols, beat Indiana. Indiana.